happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. Have you ever been blind to something obvious and right in front of you? It happens to me regularly, multiple times a week. It never fails. There's that occasion where I am looking for something in the refrigerator or in my closet, and I turn and I, I say to Chelsea, where is this? Where did you put it? I know that you've put it in some secret place to frustrate me. Why do you do these things? And then she walks right next to me and says, it's right in front of you. Right in front of your face. Sometimes it is easy to miss that which is obvious. To be blind to that which is right before you. And this is what we see in our passage this morning, 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. We see three blind men. The king of Syria is blind to God's providence. The servant of Elisha is blind to God's protection and presence. And the king of Israel is blind to God's provision. Really, that last one should probably be God's grace, but it doesn't alliterate with all the P's, and so like good Baptists, we've gone with providence, protection, and provision. You can hold your applause for later. That said, you can see that our main idea, what I want you to walk away from this section contemplating is this. I want you to see. See that God sees to everything. See that God sees to everything. And if we were going to maybe do a different main idea, it might be that God fights for his people. His will and his word get done. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege of approaching you. We thank you that we have access to you through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, who offered his blood for our sins in our place. He died as our substitute so that we can come before you made pure and holy, that we can come before you with boldness and confidence in him by your spirit. And so we come this morning, Lord, asking that you might speak to us through your holy word, that you might strengthen the bonds between us, that your Holy Spirit might remind us we are bound together, not merely by human blood, but by the divine blood of the Lamb shed for us and for our sins, that we are held together by your Holy Spirit. Increase our intimacy with one another and with you. We ask that you would send your Spirit to us now, that you would Give me a clear mind, a full heart, and an eloquent tongue that I might speak your words to your people. We pray that that which is from me would fall on deaf ears, whereas that which is from you would be heard, believed, and treasured up. That it might grow up within us and cause us to bear good and holy fruit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 8 of 2 Kings chapter 6. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But, The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. 
The first thing to notice about this passage, and you'll see it play out later on, is that the king of Syria and the king of Israel and even Elisha's servant are all unnamed. They're sort of generic characters in the story, and that's intentional. The author wants to put the spotlight on God and God's prophet. He wants to remind us once more of God's providence, that God is orchestrating everything together according to his word and according to his will. We get a sample of this in verses 8 through 10 when we're told that the Syrian king is warring against Israel. He's coming up with his battle plans, and time and time again, his plans are foiled. The Israelites escape his traps time and time again. And then we recognize this king, like most of us, he smells a rat. Now, he wants to know who among his people is a traitor. Who is telling Israel all of his plans so that he is unable to find victory? We can almost picture him in his war room council. Got a big table out before him. There's so many pieces on it. It looks like a game of risk. He's strategizing Another plan has just failed, and he he brings his fist down on the table. Tell me, who is the mole? Who is the traitor? His lieutenant comes and says, well, well, sir. And it is interesting. This lieutenant seems to have a lot of information that, when I don't know how. But he says, actually, sir, we're we're all loyal to you. It's Elisha, this prophet of God in Israel. He is the one who is giving away your battle plan. And he knows even the words you speak in your bedroom. The last is eyebrow raising. It's eyebrow raising to us because I don't know that we consider this truth. It's true of the Syrian king, and it's, it's true for us, that the Lord knows the words that you speak even in your bedroom, even those most quiet whispers hidden in the recesses of your heart, the Lord knows. That's a little frightening that the Lord knows all of these things. He is omniscient, that is, all-seeing and all-knowing. He knows all of your secrets. They are open before him. And this should be at least a little bit disconcerting to you on some level. Particularly in light of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. This is what he says. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. What he means here is not the Pauline use of justified, but that shown to be. By your words, you will be shown to be justified. You'll be shown that you are right with God. And by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus is saying, your words show what is in your heart. And every careless words you speak, you will give an account for. Not just the careless words that you speak to other people, but those secret ones that you have in your heart, that zinger that you held back even. Probably good that you held it back, but the Lord still knows it. He still knows your heart. You will still give an account for it. And this should cause us to ask ourselves, how am I using my words? Make us think about all the times we've drawn our words like swords that we might thrust another through. I think particularly this comes to the fore in marital relationships. 
Husbands and wives know each other so well. They know just the right thing to say that goes straight to the heart. That argument comes, and all of a sudden there's, there's that, you know, that gun in your bullet that you are ready to fire off. You know, when, when he says this, I'm going to say, well, what about the time you... And when she says that, I know I'm going to bring this particular event up. I'm going to do harm with my words. This should make us think twice about that. Or maybe, maybe you've been prone to gossip. Not because you're nefarious or anything, but because you like conversation. You know, without a good rumor, well, the conversation just isn't as interesting. That old proverb is right after all, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. We love hot conversational fires, and hot takes, and juicy gossip, but we will give account for every careless word that rises from our tongues. The Lord knows even the words you speak in your bedroom. James warns us about how we would use our words by alluding to that instrument with which we forge them, our tongue, James 3, 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. If we were to paraphrase James, we might say, a fool's tongue is long enough to cut his own throat, the throats of others. A tongue is a dangerous thing because from it come words. Words can do great damage. They can bring death and they can bring life. And we will give an account for every careless word we speak. The Lord knows even the words we speak in our bedrooms. He is all-seeing. Friends, consider how you are using your words and endeavor to use them in such a way that when you stand before Christ and give an account of your words, that you can do so mostly with a smile on your face. Seeking not to metaphorically kill others with your words, but to build them up. Proverbs 16.24 tells us, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Let's speak words that are seasoned with the salt of grace, words that are like a honeycomb to those who hear them. Let us use our words carefully. And one good way to use them is to encourage one another. I say to you all the time, no one is suffering from too much encouragement. Be careful about how you use your words. God knows you will give in account. He knows even the words you speak in your bedroom. And he knows the words of this Syrian king. He knows the plans of this Syrian king, and in his providence, he thwarts them. He does not allow the Syrian king to achieve 
victory. And the Syrian king is blind to God's omniscience and to God's providence. Even after he is told that Elisha knows all about him and is overcoming his military tactics, he does not stop to think and ask the obvious questions, like I would ask. How does Elisha know all of my plans? How does he know the words that I speak in my bedroom? Oh, he's a prophet of Israel. Well, tell me, tell me about Elisha's God. He doesn't ask any of those questions. No, he, does, he acts almost like this is entirely normal that another human being a long way away would know all of his plans. He acts as if, you know, he lived through, was it the 60s when Nixon did the Watergate thing and tapped the phones? Like he acts like that's a normal thing, like his room has been bugged. And so his reaction is not to ask about who Elisha is or Elisha's God. He's blind to all of that. No, his reaction is to try and have Elisha arrested. You might think to yourself, if Elisha knows all of his plans, wouldn't he know this plan? It doesn't stop. He doesn't do that sort of thinking. Instead, we read verse 13, and he, that's the king, said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, if you're like me, you're having flashbacks to 2 Kings in chapter 1, when a different king tried to arrest Elijah. And you'll remember how that went. Elijah called down fire from heaven and consumed uh, 51 people twice, two different groups of 50, before finally going with the king after they asked him nicely. And so, so you are expecting maybe this isn't going to go so well for Syria. And so we read verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Put yourself in the, in the servant's shoes. You've woken up in the morning. Sun is beginning to rise over the horizon. You've got a a robe on, and maybe some nice slippers to keep your footsies warm. Made a cup of coffee, just poured it. Just bringing it up to your, your nostril. I haven't even drank it yet. Just, you're breathing in that wonderful aroma that's filling the house. And simultaneously, you bring up your eyes to look at the sunset, and then you catch something in the corner. A little flash draws your attention, and you realize there are men out there. Many of them, horses and chariots, an army has surrounded you. And they don't, they don't mean to do anything nice to you. If it was a movie, you know, the coffee cup would, the, the camera would zoom in on the coffee cup and it would fall to the ground out of your hands in slow motion. You know, it would break and the liquid would go everywhere. It's a dramatic scene. Alas, what shall we do? Verse 16, Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now you can, you're the servant, you're like me, you're going, oh no. Elisha has lost it. The stress, it's broken him. He can't even count right there, you know, there's a, few of us, but there's a lot more of them. What, oh, what are we going to do? We're doomed. And then verse 17 happens. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw Behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
This is no mistake that these are angelic horses of chariots, fire. Remember, Elijah leaves and he is swept up by chariots and horses of fire. When God makes himself known on Mount Carmel, it's through fire. The fire is symbolic of God's presence with his people. And so we come across that big theme in Kings again, that God has not abandoned his people. Judgment is coming. The exile is on the horizon. And yet God has remained faithful to be with his faithful people. He is still at work among those who are faithful to him. He has not abandoned them. His armies did not leave with Elijah. They are present with Elisha. God is still with his people, still fighting for his people. In his providence, he's made it so that the king was able to escape the hand of the king of Syria more than once or twice. God is at work. He needs not the armies of men because he has the host of heaven. At his command. Elisha sees with a double vision that his servant lacks. You see, Elisha is is walking by faith. He, He sees that which is immediately in front of him, and he sees that which is beyond the sight of the natural man. He sees with spiritual eyes. You see, friends, walking by faith and not by sight means walking with double vision. It means that you see that which is immediately apparent and in front of you and in the world. And it means seeing that which is unseen by faith. Seeing that which is out in eternity. Seeing the reality that God is in control. That he has angels at his command. That there are spirits all around in the world. Elisha's servant is blind because he has on materialistic glasses. And the same is all too often true of you and I. We are as blind as his servant. As materialistic as any. Put on the culture-colored glasses of the world around us. We listen to talk of horses and chariots of fire and of angels as if it were fairy tale. In the Western world, we, we don't think about, you know, when we turn to walk out of a room bumping into unseen angels. We don't think that God has sent his angels out to minister on our behalf, to serve us as they serve him. But the Bible makes it clear that that is happening all the time. A whole host of verses that speak to this. I'll just read one in Hebrews 1.14. Speaking of angels, the author writes, Are they, that's angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Elisha's servant is afraid of the army because he just sees what's right in front of him. He doesn't have that double vision. He doesn't see beyond that to the spiritual reality that God is in control and that God fights for his people. That God ultimately rules even the enemy. Friends, our fears prevail over us when we do not see that which is unseen. Think about the things that you are afraid of. I did a Google search this week to help me come up with top 10 things people fear. Some of them were were ridiculous. Uh, But I'm going to share with you the ones that make sense to me. I'm not talking like fear of snakes or fear of a spider or whatever. Fear of losing a loved one. Fear of losing a job. These are top 10. Fear of financial crisis. Fear of losing health. Fear of polluted drinking water. 
on and on it goes. When we, we look at these things and are afraid of them, it is because our fears prevail when we do not see that which is unseen. Materialism keeps us from seeing the truth that God is at work in the world, that he is unfolding all of reality according to his perfect plan. We fail to recognize that he is going to bring glory even from those things that we might have a great fear of. When we are not trusting in the Lord's sovereign plan, we find ourselves consumed by fear and worry. But we look at those lions of our anxiety and we think, they're going to consume me. There's nothing between me and the, the lion of losing my job. There, there's nothing between me and the lion of a financial crisis. I'm, I am doomed. This, I can't do anything. I'm surrounded. But the truth is, as it was for Pilgrim, in the pilgrim's progress. The lions are on chains, though he saw them not. You see, our materialism keeps us from seeing that all of our lions are chained and that the leash is held by our Heavenly Father. We live as if what we can physically see is all that there is in the world. We become very unsettled because we cannot see that we are surrounded by horses and chariots of fire. We do not see that there are more who are with us than those who are with the enemy. We forget that we need not fear because Jesus Christ is our king. We forget that we need not fear because Jesus Christ is for us, fighting on our behalf, bringing about his good purposes in our lives. Friends, it would be so helpful to us in our day-to-day -day living as we combat our fears and learn to live with courage Courage is not the absence of fear completely. When, when the Bible says fear not, it's not saying don't ever be afraid. It's saying fear God most. Trust God above whatever these other fears are and act righteously. That's what it means to be courageous. If you don't have a real danger, you don't have a real opportunity for courage. Right, right? Courage is being presented with a danger or a risk and then doing the right thing in the face of that fear. This is what the Bible allows us to have courage because we see who Christ is. We recognize that he's for us. So that when you look out and the hillside is full of the enemy and, and your natural instinct is to be absolutely terrified, paralyzed by fear, you can be like Elisha. Calm. You can say, I fear not. There are chariots of fire around us. Not a hair on my head will perish apart from the will of my Father. It would help us all to be more courageous if we would remember truths that are taught to us over and over in the Bible. And if we remember just the truth, I love the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. It's pertinent here. Question one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has made full satisfaction for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, 
that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, God also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. When we recognize that God is God and that we belong to him, that he is our hope in life, he is our hope in death, then we realize we don't need to be afraid that we can be courageous. And you say, that's, that's great in theory, Pastor. But how? How do I create this sort of courage that we're talking about, the sort of courage Elisha has here in my own life? And I think that's a really good question. I think there are a few things we can say to that. First, we should know God's word. We should take the kindling of God's word and and put it in our hearts so that it might eventually catch flame. We should knit God's word to our eyelids. Passages like Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Or Isaiah 41.10. You should be able to memorize this one. It's basically a verse of how firm a foundation. It says, Fear not because I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see the ground for the confidence God says, be confident, obey my command, and do so with courage and without fear. You can do that because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Fear not because I am with you. And so the reason that we can fear not is because God is with us. And you go, those are Old Testament passages. Yes, they apply to you, believer. God is with his people. God fights for his people. See, in the Great Commission, when Jesus commands us to go and make disciples of all the nations, what confidence does he give us? He says, I am with you wherever you go. Friends, Jesus Christ is with you, and therefore you need not fear. He is with you, and heaven's armies are around you. There are horses and chariots of fire. But go to and fro in service of God's loved ones. Knit God's word to your eyelids. Hide it in your heart. Secondly, how we can practice courage or prepare ourselves to be courageous in the face of fear. We want to know God's word, but we also want to train ourselves to think straight and to believe it. One of the ways that I have discovered worry sort of worms its way into my heart is in my thinking. Start imagining the future into the present And there is one sort of governing question. I will say over and over again, what if this happens? Right? What if fill in the blank? What would you what do you think? Just think for a second, take a moment. What would you fill in the blank with? Something terrible happening. Well, what if happens? You can begin to think that. Well, what if this happens and then that happens and this happens? And all of a sudden, you are buried beneath a pile of anxieties. And so I think I've just found it really helpful to recognize the truth that the Bible teaches me and then to map that onto my Christian life. What I mean by that is when I start to think, well, what if this happens? I I flip it, say, even if this happens, Christ is with me. Even if whatever you fill in the blank with happens, Jesus Christ is with me. 
And if that is true, then I need not fear. I can be strong. I can be courageous by the grace that he has given to me because he is with me. He has promised to uphold me with his righteous, omnipotent hand. We don't have to be afraid because God is with us and is for us. And that's the secret Paul is after in Philippians 4. Everybody knows I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But we twist this truth and misunderstand it. It doesn't mean because I, can believe, because I believe in Jesus, I can leap buildings in a single, single bound. It doesn't mean that I can become the world's greatest mathematician because I believe in Jesus. No, what it means, what Paul is saying, is that I can face any and every circumstance. I can be rich because Christ is with me. I can be poor because Christ is with me. I can face down dragons because Christ is with me. I can be shipwrecked and stoned and feel like I am going to die, like death itself is upon me, but I can do it because Christ is with me. And in all those things, he's teaching me to rely on him more and more. In all those things, I'm being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So I need not fear because I can face any circumstance in Christ. He's with me. He's strengthening me. That's what Paul is saying. Philippians 4 is not a call to self-trust, but to be strengthened by Christ. Let me read it to you in context, Philippians 4, 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How? How can you be content, Paul? Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can face all circumstances through Christ who strengthens me. He's with me and he strengthens me. And so believer, fear not. Your God is with you. Fear not. If I can steal a, a line from the kids' song. I don't, know, I don't know if you guys grew up with this or not, but maybe you'll know it. Uh, my God is so big and so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Fear not, that's true. Fear not, God is with you. Though the world stand against you, Christ is for you, believer. Fear not, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Fear not, Christ has delivered you from evil, will deliver you from all evil, and will deliver you from death. Christ has saved you is saving you, and will save you. Fear not. Jesus Christ prevails. The battle belongs to the Lord. God fights for his people. Fear not. See with double vision. See that God is seeing to everything. See the unseen and be strong and courageous as you obey God's word and walk through the ordinary every day of life. Elisha encourages his servant to see the unseen. He prays that his servant's eyes would be open. <clears throat> and the Lord performs a miracle. He opens his eyes so that he can see the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And now, something interesting happens. Elisha is going to pray to the Lord for something else. Look with me at verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, 
O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Elisha answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. So Elisha, surrounded by the army of the enemy, prays that the Lord would blind them. And most are agreed that this is not a physical blindness, but some sort of dazed condition because they're going to travel the 10-ish miles to the center of Samaria. And they're going to follow Elisha there. And so it's more like they're dazed, out of sorts, befuddled, under a spell of some sort. It's almost like Elisha does a Jedi trick, right? This, I am, this is not the city you are looking for. And they're like, this is not the city we are looking for. All right, follow me. And they follow him into the center of Israel. And so the script has been flipped. They surrounded Israel's prophet, and now when their eyes are opened again, they are surrounded by Israel's armies. And Israel's king asks, almost like a child, can we kill them? Can we kill them, please? And he's blind to the lesson that God is teaching him. You see, this king is is likely Jehoram and has sold himself out to idolatry and to following false gods. He's in open rebellion against Yahweh. And what I think God is doing here through Elisha is he's showing the king that victory can be his. He's saying, I can defeat your enemies with just one man. Easy. If you will repent and put your faith in me, I will defeat your enemy. If you will lead the people to obey my word rather than following their hearts, well, blessing will follow. You you can repent and enjoy victory like like David, peace, like Solomon. I can make your enemies blind such that they march right into the center of your city like prisoners. The king is blind to this. He misses it. He never repents, never turns himself fully to the Lord. And as a result, Syria, just verse 24, will lay siege to Samaria. And the foolish king will blame Elisha and God himself for their plight. He misses it. Instead, he lusts for blood to be spilled. Shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? We can understand why he would want this. These Syrians have been going on raids in Israel. We know from the story of Naaman that one little girl was carried off. And so certainly others have been carried off. He, he wants justice. He, he wants to take them out. But Elisha says, that's not what I've come to do. I've come to show you the power of God. And I've also come to show you the mercy of God. The king wants a slaughter. And Elisha says, no, you are to serve them a feast. The king wants bedlam. <laughs> And Elisha says, no, make a banquet. Set before your enemies bread and water. Set before them a great feast and then send them back to their master. And the king does this. And one just has to wonder how that conversation went with the king of Syria. Right? They, they get back home and he says, oh, did, you, did, you, did you get Elisha? Um, no, not exactly. Where have you been? 
well, you know, we, we went to Elisha's place, and then uh, we ended up in Samaria. Enemy surrounded us. Uh, they fed us, and then they sent us back to you. What? Yeah, 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 yeah. They, they fed us and sent us back here. That doesn't make any sense. No, no. They, they fed us. Great feast. Sent us back here. We wrapped up some apple pie for you, and it's, it's good now. We're going to give up the whole raiding thing for a little while. Must have been just a preposterous conversation, but we can see just as God graciously was inviting the king of Israel to see his power and to trust in his power, he's offering an invitation to these Syrians, just as he did to Naaman. He's saying, you can have peace with me. You can have peace with me and eat at my table if you will worship me alone as Naaman did. You can almost, there's an old hymn. You, you can change it. Come ye Syrians, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Jesus Christ is full of love and power and mercy. And he holds out the offer of salvation to his enemies. I think it's tempting for us to read a passage like this and go, no, we're not the blind king of Israel. We're, we're not the, the blind king of Syria. Maybe we're the blind servant of Elisha, but not really. We're Elisha. That's where we usually sort of picture ourselves in the story. But the reality is that all of us apart from Christ are these Syrians who surrounded Elisha. I think sometimes when you talk to anyone out in the world about the relationship between God and people, they sort of think that everything is cool. <laughs> I'm good with God, and, you know, when I die, they'll sort of be, if God exists, there'll be this adding up of my good deeds. And really, I'm a good person, and so I'll go into heaven, and most everyone will go into heaven except for the really bad, bad people, you know, like, like Hitler and Stalin. But the rest of us, we're, we're good. God is mostly inclined to just loving me. We're on the same team. Brothers and sisters, that's not true. Apart from Christ, you are God's enemy. Apart from Christ, you are as the Syrians, and you would surround God's prophet, God's holy son, and you would have him dead. You, apart from Christ, are an enemy of God. You seek to de-God him and rule your own life as your own God. Apart from Christ, you would seek to kill the Christ because he claims to be king. Friends, apart from Christ, we are God's enemies. And justly and rightly, he could strike us down in a moment, with ease. But as Romans 5 says, God shows his love, love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ died for us, his enemies. We can have peace with God, eat at his table as his children, because Jesus Christ died for our sins on Calvary's hill. We can have peace with God because Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and his world was crashing down around his ears, didn't call 12 legions of angels to deliver him. He had the double vision. He saw the spiritual realities. He knew of God's plan and of God's providence. He had God's protection right there with him. But he endeavored to be God's provision for sinners. He could have, he could have broken out of the garden. But he set his course to the cross and submission to his father's plan. 
When he was on the cross, he could have called 10,000 of heaven's hosts to take him down, take the nails out of his hands, the thorns out of his brow, to patch up his wounds. They could have put a sword in his hand and he could have slaughtered all of his enemies, including you and I, and been just in doing it. But instead, he was strong and courageous. He didn't call out for heaven's armies because he sought to save his enemies. He sought to save all who would repent of their sins and put their trust in him. All who would take their own crowns off of their heads and bend their knees to him. He who wears the crown of the cosmos. My non-Christian friend, those who have peace with God and relationship with God have it because of his mercy, because of his grace, because they were once blind, but now they see. And my prayer is that this morning you would see Maybe you've begun to. Friend, repent and put your faith in Christ. Talk to somebody about it. Talk about what it looks like to any Christian here. I'll help you to follow Jesus. Church, this should put steel in your spine. Fear not. Follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ who courageously went to the cross for you. You don't have to fear. God worked out the cross according to his good purposes to bring about your salvation. And God will work through whatever crosses or crucibles come into your life to bring about your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. So fear not that God, the God who is rich in mercy, abounding in love, the God who is almighty over all things is your God. He is with you and he is for you. Fear not. See that your God sees to everything. Let's pray. Father, help us who see to see more clearly by your Holy Spirit through your word. Help us who are blind, those who do not yet know you, to see for the first time. Help us all this morning to see and savor Christ together. As we sing of his wonderful love, amazing love, how can it be that he, our God, would take on flesh and die for us? We pray with amazement in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen.